I know that probably everyone in the audience today knows who Jesus is and believes that He's the Son of God. But there are a lot of people in the world that don't. If you happen to know or encounter someone that doesn't believe in Jesus, maybe the information I present today will help you convince them that Jesus was indeed who He claimed to be. At the very least, maybe I had a boost to your faith. I know it did mine. The Christian religion stands or falls on the person of Jesus Christ. Judaism could survive without Moses. Buddhism could survive without Buddha. Islam without Mohammed. But Christianity could not survive without Jesus This is because, unlike most other world religions, Christianity is belief in a person, a genuine historical individual, but at the same time a special individual whom Christians regard not only as human, but also divine. Jesus Christ is the center of Christianity, and thus it is very important for us to understand his personal claims. During the late 18th and 19th centuries, numerous European authors wrote concerning the life of Jesus as they claimed it really was, without the supernatural events recorded in the Gospels. They didn't deny that Jesus really existed. Their intent was to discredit him as being divine. For example, one individual wrote that Jesus was the member of a secret society who sought to persuade the Jewish nation to substitute the idea of a spiritual Messiah for their concept of a human Messiah. They claim that this attempt they claim that this attempt backfired and as a result Jesus was arrested, condemned and crucified. However, he was taken down from the cross and placed in the tomb alive where he revived. A member of the secret society dressed in white frightened away the guards at the tomb and other members then took Jesus from the tomb. During 40 days thereafter, he appeared to various disciples always to return to the secret place of the society. Finally, his energy spent, he permanently retired. As ridiculous as this may sound to us, this is just one of the many theories have been set forth in an attempt to discredit Jesus. Even today, Jesus continues to fascinate the minds of men and women. From sensational films to debates in academic societies and books and journals, Jesus is a matter of controversy. Book after book, article after article, continues to be written about Jesus in an attempt to either discredit him or to verify that he was who he claimed to be. So who did this first century Galilean take himself to be? A political or social revolutionary? A practitioner of magical arts? A Jewish rabbi or prophet? The Messiah? The Son of God? Who did Jesus really think he was? Was he just a good man, a moral teacher, or was he actually God? That's the question I'm going to examine this morning. To answer this question, we're going to go to the best possible source, that is Jesus himself. And it's set forth in both the Old and New Testaments. I 
I played that song, Ancient Words. I love that song. Talks about the ancient... Did you know that the Bible is based on the most ancient manuscripts in the world? There are no other manuscripts that are older than what the Bible is based on. In March of 1947, a young Arab shepherd boy was watching his sheep seven and a half miles south of Jericho and one mile west of the Dead Sea. After tossing a rock at a stray goat, he heard the sound of breaking pottery. What ensued was one of the greatest literary and archaeological discoveries of all time. What is now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. The scrolls encompass a total of 931 documents, dating from 300 B.C. to 40 A.D. The scrolls contain a variety of different writings. Portions of every book of the Old Testament, except the book of Esther. Commentaries on the books of the Bible, rules for religious rituals, community life, marriage contract, deeds of sale, calendars, and others. One of these scrolls, now known as the Great Isaiah Scroll, dated at about 125 B.C., and that's important, 125 B.C., 125 years before Jesus came. This 24-foot scroll contains the complete book of Isaiah, all 66 chapters, and is the oldest biblical scroll in existence. It is about a thousand years older than the previous oldest manuscript. The Dead Sea Scrolls proved accurate with the previous existing manuscripts and provide exceptional testimony to the preservation of the biblical text throughout the centuries. This particular scroll predates Christ by over a hundred years and probably contains the clearest and most complete prophecy about the coming Messiah. Isaiah calls the Messiah the servant of the Lord and begins referring to this servant in chapter 42. The servant is often referred to as the suffering servant because of the vivid description of his sacrificial death found in Isaiah 53, a passage that's familiar to most of us. Let's look at a few characteristics and accomplishments of Isaiah's servant. He is elected by the Lord, anointed by the Spirit, and promised success in his endeavor. Isaiah 42, 1 and 4. God predestined him to his calling. 49, verse 1, Isaiah. He's a gifted teacher. His ministry extends to the Gentiles. The servant encounters strong opposition and resistance to his teaching, even of physically violent nature. Chapter 50. He experiences suffering and afflictions. Chapter 53. And is put to death after being condemned. Chapter 53. These are just a few. There are several others. I'm going to read a few verses of Isaiah 53. As you listen to this reading, ask yourself this question. To whom you think it is referring? He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. A casual reading of Isaiah 53 should leave no doubt that the suffering servant is Jesus. 
In fact, the traditional Jewish interpretation of the servant passages was that they predicted the coming Messiah. That is, up until about a thousand years ago, when a rabbi by the name of Rashi reinterpreted the suffering servant to be the nation of Israel rather than the Messiah. Today, Rashi's view dominates Jewish theology and appears to be motivated by the desire to avoid the conclusion that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, who was predicted hundreds of years beforehand. If Isaiah was the only passage in the Old Testament to predict the coming of the Messiah, clearly it would be enough. But there are other passages in the Old Testament to predict the coming of the Messiah or that are ultimately fulfilled by him. Genesis 3.15 predicts that the offspring of Eve, literally the seed of Eve, will ultimately crush Satan. But this human being, unlike other human beings, will be from the seed of a woman rather than the seed of a man, Matthew 1.23. The Messiah would be the, son of, would be the son of David, and he would be called God, Jeremiah 23.5 and 6, which read, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. <clears throat> the Messiah, who is the eternal, would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. The Messiah would be born as a child, but he would also be God. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That's a verse you often hear read and spoke about during Christmas time. All of the Old Testament predictions point to Jesus as the promised Messiah. But what about Jesus himself? What did he think? What did he claim about himself? The Greek word for Messiah is Christos or Christ. Early Christians connected this title so closely to Jesus that it became practically a proper name, Jesus Christ. Thus, when you refer to Jesus Christ, you're actually referring to Jesus, the Messiah. The very term used to describe his followers, Christians, show how central their belief was that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Question is, where did they come up with this idea? If Jesus himself never claimed to be the Messiah, what would prompt his followers to call him that? He did not, in fact, reestablish David's throne in Jerusalem, Instead, he was crucified by his enemies. There is good evidence, however, that Jesus did, in fact, think he was the Messiah. For example, take the account of Peter, famous confession in Mark 8, 27 and 30. Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. 
On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Peter's reply to Jesus' question is independently confirmed in John 6.69, which states, We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Another account which illustrates that Jesus thought himself as the Messiah is Matthew 11.2-6. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. So what do you think John understood from the answer that Jesus sent to him? Jesus is referring to Old Testament scriptures, actually a blend of three different passages. Isaiah 35, 4 through 6. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mule Tongue, shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This is the reference to the coming Messiah, predicting that the blind would see, the deaf would hear, and the lame would walk or leap like a deer. <clears throat> Isaiah twenty six nineteen. But your dead will live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Note that this is a reference to the dead being raised. And Isaiah 61.1 The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from the darkness for the prisoners. So these references refer to the good news being preached to the poor, but it also explicitly mentions God's anointed one, meaning the Messiah. These passages provide additional evidence that Jesus was the Messiah and that he thought of himself as the Messiah. Maybe even more convincing than the words of Jesus are his actions, which disclose his sense of being the promised Messiah. Consider his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is recorded independently by both Mark and John. One week before his death, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, seated on a colt, and was hailed by the Passover festival crowds with shouts of, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. People thought this was in anticipation of the coming of David's kingdom. In mounting a colt and riding into Jerusalem, Jesus is deliberately fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. which reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Jesus does this deliberately and in the process is in fact claiming to be the promised king of Israel. At his trial, the issue of Jesus being the Messiah comes up when Caiaphas, the high priest, asks Jesus whether he is the Messiah, the son of the blessed one. This was the charge brought against him that resulted in his crucifixion. The plaque that was nailed to the cross over his head recorded the charge and read, the king of the Jews. With the overwhelming evidence of fulfilled prophecies, along with Jesus' own words and his actions, I believe we can safely conclude that Jesus did indeed believe he was the Messiah, the anointed and promised one from God. But what about being the son of God? Well, what was his understanding about himself and what did he actually claim? Did Jesus claim to be the true son of of God or was this simply a title given to him by the New Testament writers? Many people today deny that he was God or even claim to be God. So let's take a look at that question. Jesus actually did claim to be God in at least nine different ways. He claimed to be the great I am. He claimed to be Yahweh or Lord. He claimed to be equal with God. He claimed to be the Messiah, God. Worthy of honor, do only God. Worthy of worship, equal in authority with God and the object of prayer, just like God. Remember what God told Moses in Exodus 3.14? God said to Moses, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Jesus used the exact same words in John 8.58-59 when he said, Before Abraham was born, I am. The Jews knew exactly what he was saying. He was claiming to be God, the I am of the Old Testament. Why? Because they picked up stones to stone him. Jesus claimed to be Yahweh, or God, or Lord. In the Old Testament, God is referred to in many different ways. For example... He's referred to as the shepherd, the first and last, the judge, the bridegroom, the light, the savior, God's glory, and the giver of life. In the New Testament, these same attributes are applied to Jesus. Jesus is also seen as the shepherd, the first and last, the judge, the bridegroom, the light, the savior, God's glory, and giver of life. Jesus is referred to in the New Testament in the same way that God is referred to in the Old Testament. Jesus claimed to be equal with God. How? In the Gospel of Mark, when he healed the paralytic, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They understood Jesus to be claiming that he was God because no one but God could forgive sins. Man did not have the authority to forgive sins. Thus, 
they accused him of blasphemy. Jesus claimed to be one with the Father, John 10, 30 and 33. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So here's a question. Why do people today say that Jesus never claimed to be God? When the people in the Bible had no problem realizing what he claimed. Why did they pick up stones? They weren't clearing the ground to, to plant a vegetable garden. They were going to stone him because he was claiming to be God. They should know, after all, they were the ones standing there. Jesus claimed to be Messiah, God. We already looked at the passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah 9, where the Messiah was called Mighty God and Everlasting Father. <clears throat> Remember the conversation that the woman at the well had with Jesus? John chapter 4. The woman said, I know the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. <clears throat> we also looked earlier at Mark 14, verse 61, when Caiaphas, the high priest, asked Jesus if he was the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One. I didn't read verse 62, in which Jesus replied to Caiaphas, what did he say? He said, I am. At this point, Caiaphas tore his clothes and accused Jesus of blasphemy and condemned him as worthy of death. The people of the time had no problem understanding that Jesus was claiming to be God. Jesus claimed to be worthy of honor due only God. John 5, 22 Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. All may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Would you ever honor another human being as you would honor God? No, of course not. But here we see Jesus claiming he is supposed to get honor equal with God. Why? Because he's claiming to be God. Jesus claimed to be worthy of worship, it, worship and he accepted it from several. <clears throat> the mother of James and John, Matthew chapter 20. The Gerasene demoniac, Mark chapter 5. A healed blind man, John chapter 9. The disciples after a storm, Matthew 14. The women at the tomb, Matthew 28. Canaanite woman, Matthew 15. His disciples, Matthew 28. A healed leper, Matthew 8. A rich young ruler, Matthew 9. So at least on nine separate occasions, Jesus accepted worship due only to God. And note, Jesus never rebuked anyone who worshipped him. He even commended those who acknowledged his deity. 
This could only be done by a person who seriously considered himself to be God, contrary to what the Jehovah Witnesses say. Angels did not accept worship, however, Jesus did. In the first chapter of Hebrews, we see that even the angels of heaven worshiped the Son. Jesus claimed to be equal in authority with God. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Later in the Great Commission, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is not the talk of just a man. Who but God can truthfully claim that they have all authority in both heaven and earth? This is the language of God. Finally, Jesus claimed to be the object of prayer, just like God. Jesus said in John 14, 13 to, verses 13 and 14, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Jesus is saying that when you pray, pray in my name. He's the mediator. These are not the words of a man. These are the words of someone claiming to be God. Imagine that you had a friend or a neighbor that was making these kinds of claims. I am the first and the last, the self-existing one. Do you need your sins forgiven? I can do it. Do you want to know how to live? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you want to know whom you can trust? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Do you have any requests or worries? Pray in my name. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. Do you need access to God the Father? No one comes to the Father except through me. The Father and I are one. What would you think about your friend or neighbor if he seriously said these things? You certainly wouldn't say, well, I think he's a great moral teacher. No way. You probably say this guy is a couple of bricks short of a full load because he's claiming to be God. Here's what C.S. Lewis had to say about that concept from his book, Mere Christianity. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish things that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of thing Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would rather be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Lewis is absolutely right. Since Jesus clearly claimed to be God, he couldn't be a great moral couldn't be just a great moral teacher. Great moral teachers don't deceive people by falsely claiming to be God. 
Since Jesus claimed to be God, one of three possibilities exists or could be true. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, that is God. Was Jesus a liar, a charlatan, a messianic manipulator? <clears throat> Hugh Schoenfield, in his book, The Passover Plot, claimed that he was all three. Schoenfield charged that Jesus planned to fake his own death on the cross, but had not counted on a spear being thrust through his side. Thus, rather than recovering from his stupor, Jesus died unexpectedly. On Saturday evening, his body was moved to a secret place so that his tomb would be empty on the next day, thus leaving the impression of his resurrection a deity. Jesus lived and taught the highest standard of ethics. What sane man would die for what he knows to be a lie? Someone who lived as Jesus lived, taught as Jesus taught, and died as Jesus died could not have been a liar. If Jesus thought he was God, but really wasn't, then he would have been a lunatic. But lunatic doesn't fit either. <clears throat> Jesus uttered some of the most profound sayings ever recorded. Would a lunatic teach that we should do unto others as we would have them do unto us? Would a lunatic ask that we pray for our enemies? Would a lunatic teach that we should turn the other cheek? And then set an example of exactly how to do that? No <clears throat> lunacy of the sort ascribed to Christ by his detractors does not produce such genius. And everyone, even his enemies, claimed that Jesus was a man of integrity who taught the truth. For example, Mark twelve fourteen, they came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Of course, he went on to answer. So that leaves us with Lord or God. The argument can be put very simply. <clears throat> Jesus was either one, God, if his claim about himself was true, or two, a bad man, if what he said was not true. For good men do not claim to be God. If anyone in history was not a bad man, Jesus was not a bad man. Therefore, he was and is God. <clears throat> in light of his miraculous deeds, his resurrection, his supreme conduct and teachings, the prophecies he fulfilled, and the fact that he would be unlikely to die for his own lie, Liar and lunatic are eliminated, and we conclude he indeed Lord. <clears throat> There's one other title Jesus claimed for himself. He referred to himself as the Son of Man. This was Jesus' favorite self-description and is the title found most frequently in the Gospels, in which it occurs over 80 times. <clears throat> Yet remarkably, this title is found only once outside the Gospels in the rest of the New Testament. It occurs in Acts 7.56 when Stephen was being stoned. That shows that the designation of Jesus as the Son of Man was not a title that arose in later Christianity and then was written back into the traditions about Jesus. So what is the meaning of the phrase, the Son of Man? Some critics maintain in calling himself Son of Man, Jesus met, merely met a human person. 
just as the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel referred to himself as the Son of Man. But with Jesus, there is a crucial difference. Jesus did not refer to himself as a Son of Man, but rather as the Son of Man. Jesus used the phrase with a definite article, the, is consistent throughout the Gospels. By using this title, Jesus was directing attention to the divine human figure prophesied in Daniel 7. Daniel describes his vision this way. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which should not pass away, and his kingdom one that should not be destroyed. In Daniel's vision, the figure looks like a human being, being a son of man, but he comes on the clouds of heaven, and to him is given a dominion and glory that belong properly to God alone. All three of the ties we've examined come together in a remarkable way at the trial of Jesus. This is the passage that we use for this morning's scripture reading, Mark 14, 60-64. The high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. This is a really great passage. Here in one fell swoop, Jesus affirms that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the coming Son of Man. He compounds his crime by adding that he is to be seated at God's right hand, a claim that is truly blasphemous in Jewish ears. This trial scene beautifully illustrates how Jesus understood all three of the diverse claims about himself. So who did Jesus think he was? I think we can now answer with confidence that Jesus thought himself as the promised Messiah. God's only Son, and Daniel's Son of Man, to whom all dominion and authority would be given, who claimed to act and speak with divine authority, who held himself to be a worker of miracles, and who believed that people, people's eternal destiny hinged on whether they, not they believed in him. He was exactly who he claimed to be. And as Ben Cook presented this past month, he was also the Word of God, the light of man, the good shepherd, the living word, and the bread of life. Simply no one else like Jesus. Psalm 77, 15 states, With your mighty arm, you redeem your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. So what does the psalmist mean by redeemed? The word redeemed means to restore to usefulness something that has been rendered useless. That is what redemption does. Redemption is a special work that only God can do. I can't redeem you from your sin. I can't even redeem myself. 
Redemption is God's special work, and everything he does in our lives is focused on our redemption, on restoring each one of us to usefulness for him. The miracles in the Bible can be <clears throat> viewed as being redemptive in nature. The miracles that God did in Egypt redeemed the people of Israel from bondage and moved them to a place of usefulness for God in the land of promise. The miracles that Jesus did in the Gospels, the transformation of water and the wine, the healings and the feedings were done to impress people with truths that would transform their hearts and redeem their lives. The most redemptive miracle of all was the resurrection, for it was the event that makes it possible for us to be saved from sin and death. In the crucifixion and resurrection, God paid the price of our redemption. He paid the price and brought us back from the pawn shop of sin and death and restored us to usefulness for him. <clears throat> Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Note the phrase, for your sakes. That is an expression of our Lord's redemptive love. It was for our sakes that he left heaven and became poor. Poor. For our sakes, he was beaten and crucified. Galatians 3, 13 and 14, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that faith by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. People are not redeemed without their knowledge or against their will. Redemption is for those that want to belong to God, for those that respond to his invitation and act upon his word. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's a tough challenge. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. In the past, God redeemed his people with his mighty arm. Then Jesus came and gave his life to redeem us. Have you responded to his gift? If you haven't, you can. Repent, confess him as the Son of God, be baptized for remission of sins. If you need to respond, do so as we stand and sing the invitation song.